Hey Matt, how's it going? Good, Alex, good to see you. Great, great to see you in your beautiful apartment. Everyone's... And we're now pretending that we haven't been here chatting for the past 30 minutes, mm -hmm. but we'll... That's yeah. alright. It's all part of the prep. That's your behind the scenes. So when Alex uh, actually walked in the door, the first thing we started talking about was that uh, we had both just read, or reread actually, uh, Zero to One, Peter Thiel's new book. If you haven't read uh, the Peter Thiel book, by the way, I highly I recommend you do so for the same reasons as when I suggest people cautiously read Atlas Shrugged. It's like, I don't know if you're necessarily supposed to agree with this, but it's worth reading and it's interesting. Well, it's certainly, I mean, and, and no one faults Peter Thiel for this, but it's certainly a powerful idea or, or a set of powerful ideas that he has that are uh, like the secrets he talks about, mm -hmm. quite contrarian. Absolutely. But also like the secrets he talks about, quite compelling as well. Mm. Oh, if, if there's anything that Peter Thiel has built a reputation for, it is having a track record of making great contrarian calls where he can then step up later and say, that's right, all you were wrong and I was right. right. And that works most of the time, because even if you're wrong, you were contrarian in the first place and, and no one remembers those contrarian arguments when they're wrong. <laughs> that's a good point. It's like, yo, you know, you know who I actually talks about this really well is Nassim Taleb, the black swan guy. Okay. Right? Um, oh, true. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's his, his big deal. Well, so, so Peter Thiel talks about contrarian arguments a lot in, in Zero to One, and the way he, he frames them are, are their secrets. Secrets. And this is, I think, I think when, I remember when I first saw the word secrets, I thought, like, wait a minute, startups shouldn't have secrets. You should tell everybody what you're doing. You shouldn't hide and be in stealth mode unless there's a really good reason to do it. But it turns out that's not really what he meant by secrets. So what did he mean? So secrets, by the way that he uses it and the way that we'll talk about it here, means something that you absolutely know for a fact to be true, despite the fact that everyone else disagrees with you. It is something that you fundamentally believe to be true, that it is a fundamentally contrarian position. So, so to him, this is more of sort of your, your unique value proposition of, of your company or, or whatever you're doing. It's a unique value proposition, but it's a specific kind. It's not something that you've discovered that no one else has thought about. It's specifically something that everyone actively disagrees with you on, right? Which is potentially much higher leverage, but you know, also most of the time, statistically speaking, you will be wrong, and the majority of the crowd will be right. So he's not. So so he's not just talking about a secret is is more or less a synonym for value. What he's talking about is. It's, it's value that you have or, or value that you're about to create, mm -hmm. but in, by definition, it's contrarian. Yes. I, gu I guess you should look at it as a secret is valuable because it is a company that nobody is building that is very valuable. A company that's no one, that no one is building that is very valuable. Yes. That sounds <laughs> like a Paul Graham article, right? <laughs> it, it probably was at some point. Um, well, I mean, speaking of Paul Graham, Y Combinator asks a version of this on their application. And one of their questions that they ask in, when they're asking about your company, which is actually very few lines, is what do you know that other people don't? Right? That's a secret. Sums it up pretty well. Um, well, so and the nature of these secrets and how they've been used in the past and, and how they're used in the present and how they may be used in the future is, is shifting a bit. Uh, and you know, so so our podcast is, is called Emergent, and, and to some extent, this is an emergent behavior of late in, in how the market is addressing or using secrets. Absolutely. Um, one of the frameworks that I have worked with a lot in the past little while is the notion that we are collectively moving from a culture of ownership to a culture of access, where more and more things that used to be on our balance sheets that we would own are now moving off to our balance sheets, are things that we can access. And on the secret front, this has to do with, you know, if you are a company and you need to acquire secrets, you need to acquire new innovation and new ideas, is this something that you do in-house or is this something that you outsource? So, so secrets used to be created on a balance sheet. Yes. You, if you were an R&D genius, if you were uh, the inventor of the age, you, you'd be working at a place like Bell Labs, you'd be, you'd be for a long time employed at this company. Uh, and you'd be able to succeed and fail within the walls of, of Bell Labs. Right. Your job would be find out important things that have never been discovered before. And typically for an outfit like Bell Labs, these would be secrets about the natural world. You know, formulas, compounds, algorithms, things that you can patent in a nutshell, which, you know, as we hear from Peter, uh, is one of two types of secrets. The other being secrets about people things people are not telling you about their behaviors or about their wants or about their desires and needs. 
Are these two types of secrets always um, the same or always different? So can I have a, a natural world secret that's also a behavioral secret? Um, uh, so, okay, in the book there's actually an example of something that can be both. And the example he gives, which is like part of the core argument of, of his book, is the idea that capitalism, i.e. the accumulation of capital, and competition, like we learn about in econ, are actually opposites. And he says this is a natural secret that you could learn through observing the natural world, but it is also a secret about people because it is something that people are not allowed to talk about. Yeah. So, so his argument boils down to the fact that in perfect competition, profits go away. So if you're a true capitalist, you don't want perfect competition, you want monopoly. Right. Interesting and, argument for a venture capitalist. Oh, 100%. But and also very true. Very, very well, very, very true, especially for the narrative of his book, which is, you know, monopolies are good, monopolies are how you make progress, monopolies are how you make money, and competition is the opposite of that. Therefore, if you want to create a company, your goal is to have no competition because you know a secret that nobody else does. Where we're going to really launch on this is the notion of what is the value of these secrets to, to the people who find them and to the people who need them? You know, how can you barter them? How can you go get them? If you're a company, if you, know, if, if you are a company that needs to continue to innovate in order to keep your stock price rising, how do you go about acquiring these secrets? Well, and, and profits are, sorry, secrets are no longer acquired via internal R&D groups like at Bell Labs anymore. Well, they, well, here this is actually something that I don't know. Maybe they still are. Like, are there still a lot of heavy internal R and D spending that is sure. consequential? I mean, I mean, R and D spending is, is is still quite a large portion of, of most companies. Sure. Okay. Well, question: If a company like let's just to pick one company, let's say Samsung, uh, has an R and D budget, is all of that budget allocated to in-house R and D, or is some of it go towards external sourcing and acquisitions and things like that? I think most companies are, are different in having used the spending. It, it can change based on um, previous experiences, uh, goals of the current leadership of the company. Uh -huh. uh, so, for example, uh, you know, we work with a company that has just recently changed how they engage with early stage companies. They were burned quite heavily recently in the past two years uh, by investing heavily in a startup that, that flopped. Okay. Uh, and they've almost been burned as an organizational. It's almost uh, an organizational Like it turned into a reputational problem, I guess? or Almost. But okay. it, it more became a way of, they realized there was an inefficiency in how they engaged with early stage companies, early sure. stage technologies. Mm -hmm. And they found it to be too risky because they lost big. Is that an inefficiency that you were at liberty to talk about? To some extent. Okay. But but one of, the, one of the things that's interesting, so so in my day job, I have, I have the opportunity to interface with a lot of these uh, big technology companies, some that I can talk about, some that I can't talk about. Uh, but it, I think it boils down to culture. I mean, so you can speak to uh, specifically uh, specific technology companies that have uh, a very secretive culture. Uh, and at these companies, they don't work well with, with organizations outside of, of their own. All of their R&D, or at least a very large portion, are, is internal. Uh, just because it's, it's very tough to work on a on a piece of technology with two companies when you can't even know the components, the operating range, or anything related to that product that you're building together. Would it be safe to call that method uh, old school? It I guess it depends on what your goals are as an organization, whether you're the incumbent, whether you're the, the challenger, and what you're trying to accomplish sure. specifically. I think if, if you're moving uh, from being the, the challenger, or if you are the challenger, you can afford to be to move a little bit faster and, and fail a bit faster. But if you're the incumbent, the risk is higher. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's quite interesting how much this is ingrained at, at the cultural level of, of large organizations. Sure. Uh, so I don't know. Going, going back to your question about how Samsung spends its R&D budget, mm -hmm. uh, I think it depends on a, on a company to company basis. But the, but there is a new type of spending where you were you know getting back to your on balance versus off balance. Mm -hmm. statement. There's a new type of spending, maybe it's not so new, but it's at least more prevalent today, mm -hmm. uh, of, of kind of moving your R&D off balance sheet. Exactly. So this is the idea of, again, it's like, why spend a lot of money trying to find secrets in-house when you could simply source them from smaller companies that you buy, right? Now that they have sufficiently discovered, de-risked, validated, 
built up a secret to the point that it is nicely packageable and purchasable and you can then implement it to your company so as to send your stock price higher. Uh, remember that if you are a public company or even if you're a very large private company, you need to continue to grow. Like your MO is to keep your stock price growing higher and higher every day. And if you simply follow the status quo from the present carry forward, that sh performance should be baked into your stock price today. Well, and, and not just growing on a day-to-day -day basis, but, but your stock price is a function of your, of your future value. Exactly. That, that, that's another way of saying this, is if you want to continue growing into the future, I guess the way Peter Thiel would phrase this is you are going to have to continuously discover new secrets that you can use to continue to gain competitive advantage and continue to earn monopoly-like profits in a certain area. So this is interesting because the, the argument that we're getting at is that there's been a shift in behavior of, of large companies, which is that in the past, a lot of this R&D was done in-house, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Bell Labs example. Yeah. And now there's this, there's a shift into what you know, we've dubbed the access economy for Fortune 500s, mm -hmm. which is that you can acquire companies mm -hmm. that have sort of de-risked and nicely packaged the secret for you at a much lower cost. You, you can afford to only pick winners. Mm -hmm. Or do you even necessarily have to acquire them? Maybe it takes the form of a licensing deal, for instance, um, where all partners are happy, except for potentially in the long run, you know, the investors in the company who are striving to actually get an exit. But I think one, one of the things that's interesting here is who wins and who loses? Because, you know, we're, we're talking about efficiencies as well and, and creating future value in your stock price. Uh, did Bell Labs necessarily lose? I don't think so. Remember, Bell got so large that they were they were truly a monopoly, I and mean, there was antitrust regulation mm -hmm. against them. Yeah. Um, well, this is something where I mean, you probably know more about the history of Bell uh, than I do, since Matt just gave me an amazing book on the history of Bell Labs that I have to read. Um, but I mean, what happened? Like, there was a point where they stood for everything that was great about innovation. Uh, what happened since then? Antitrust regulation. Is that actually like I think it? so. I mean, I, I haven't read the book in a while, but Boy. I truly think that's what happened there. So, Boy. you know, there, there's this interesting question of if there's been a shift in behavior, mm -hmm. is it necessarily more efficient? Uh, and, and I think what, what's different at the very least is, is in the past, uh, these large companies, when they were doing this sort of on-balance R&D, the, the wins would be shown in their stock price, right? If, if you... Uh, made a large innovation, brought it to market and, and, and capitalized from it, you, you'd see that in the company's market market gap. If you lost, you know, you might just see a, a bit of a dip in, in profitability from year to year. Well, it would be whatever you spent on trying to discover the secret would just show up in red ink, but that's probably very small if you're Bell Labs yeah. compared to the amount of telephone income you're making. But now when it's off balance, people who lose are the entrepreneurs and, and the investors. Mm -hmm. And and I guess, you know, to a certain extent, that's, that's a bit just... Uh, capitalism, right? It's it's now it, when it's off balance sheet for, for entrepreneurs, it's uh, more risk but also more reward, right? Remember, mm -hmm. if, if you're a scientist working in Bell Labs and you invent the next big thing, you're you're not seeing that value because you don't mm -hmm. own uh, a large percentage of the company you're working for. Oh no, you you probably probably got a nice bonus and you know a gold watch right. and or set of steak knives. <laughs> so so. You know, low risk, low reward if you're on balance sheet, high risk, high reward if you're off balance sheet. But yeah. is one necessarily more efficient than the other? To me, those are just sort of the ends of the spectrum. Yeah, well, the way I see it is if you look at the process of a secret being discovered, you know, by some small, let, let's, for, for the purposes of this story, let's focus on, you know, some algorithm that's patented that is worth a great deal to some large company once it has been sufficiently de risked. Right? It's going to get turned into a company, hopefully, by some people. Um, it's going to get into talks maybe for a licensing deal where you have a lot of expertise, Matt. Um, there's going to be some talks as to how we can move down the step towards an acquisition from a big company. And throughout all this, this company, the small company, is going to need capital to invest in all of this de-risking. That's going to come from VCs. And here's where you see the two very different types of risks that are accrued by the people who are supplying the secret. Because the entrepreneurs and the scientists and the people who discover the secret take on a great deal of risk in the form of time and effort that might not pay off. But financially, it seemed to me that the bulk of the risk here is borne by the LPs 
of whoever is funding this. No, it's a great point. I mean, the, the, for an entrepreneur and from an entrepreneur's perspective, the concept of limited liability is a beautiful thing. Oh, but sure you can is. declare bankruptcy and start up again the very next day if you want. Your reputation might be tarnished, but legally, mm. you're in the clear. So you make a good point about LPs. I mean, nationally, speaking from, from a U.S. perspective for a second, VC um, returns are low. Mm. Are they even positive? I, I believe I, I believe they're positive, but they don't beat the market. Right. Um, well, and, and what's what's more interesting is it's it's clustered, right? I mean, the, the majority of the returns come from a small amount of the firm. Most firms are losers. It, oh, it, it is very fitting that within a just like while within a VC firm, eighty percent of your returns are coming from twenty percent of your companies, or probably actually more skewed than that. Same thing in within the VC asset class as a whole. Most of the positive returns coming from a select few elite firms. And the majority of your VC firms, I hate to say it, guys, but are sitting around sucking management fees, watching their portfolio companies die. It's interesting to note that the, the Prio principle applies also to uh, to VC capital returns. Oh, 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 that's a whole episode. But it's okay. <laughs> so, so this, yeah, it is all episode. So, for in terms of risk, right? So the entrepreneur now, sort of the the secret creators now bear. Uh, the time and, and effort risk, right? If I fail, mm-hmm. uh, I may be worse off financially, but I'll definitely have lost a lot of time in the process. You lost a lot of time, but you do gain a lot of experience, and you do get you. And, and if you do it right, hopefully this doesn't take up so much of your time that is actually a substantial chunk of your life, right? It may be personally devastating, but if you can get over it, you will probably emerge okay, right? To me, really, the people who are bearing the brunt of this are the LPs who are seeing their money get siphoned away on 2 and 20 management fees while getting a return that statistically is barely cutting it. It's, but it's, it's quite interesting because I think what the, one of the bigger misalignments here, at least the bigger uh, behavioral shifts that doesn't quite work is – when you had on balance sheet R&D as the status quo, mm-hmm. uh, again, back to the Bell Labs example, you could absorb both the uh, the large wins mm-hmm. and the small wins. Right? Mm-hmm. Remember, if, if you're bringing a product to market or supporting a product line, uh, it's an iterative approach. It's, it's not massive innovation overnight. Mm-hmm. So those those small wins still mean quite a lot to you. Mm-hmm. But you know, just as the Prio principle applies to VC firms, it also applies to their portfolio within uh, a firm, which is that you get 80% of your returns from a very small percentage of your companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's the 100xer that moves your portfolio. Mm. Uh, a medium or small size acquisition doesn't help. So the difference there is that the creation of, of small and medium sized secrets would still show up mm-hmm. you know, on balance sheet uh, R&D, mm-hmm. but not so much for off balance sheet R&D. I don't know. Did you see the post that Chris Dixon put up the other day from A16Z about it's called the Babe Ruth effect in venture capital? I didn't see it. Um, it was it was a good post. I mean, it, it didn't say anything that hasn't already been said a lot, but it was worded very concisely and very well. It's basically saying part of the reason why people misunderstand why the winning VC firms lose so many, like why do so many companies die in these winning VC firms, is because they are swinging harder. And hitting more home, home runs despite the fact that they strike out more often. Oh, and, and that's a, a perfect way to, to put it. I mean, so so for our listeners who – do we even have any listeners at this point? I don't know. We've got some. <laughs> uh, so anyone listening in the future and coming back mm-hmm. to this, uh, the way if – if you don't know already, the way VC firms work or traditional VC firm works is that um, if you raise a large fund – you need to get large returns to, to sort of move the needle on that fund to get to get a big IRR. In the mo- it, because it's risk capital, you will get a significant numbers of, of failures or, or sort of break evens in your portfolio, uh, and for the most part, those will wash out small victories. Mm-hmm. Right? You you have a company, you invest ten million in the company, they go bankrupt, the company gets acquired for ten million, you're still break even as a fund. Mm-hmm. So really, to move the needle, you need a big acquisition. Right. But, but you say this to move the needle for the people who have invested the money into the fund, right? For the VC himself, and I say himself because sadly they are mostly male at this point, um, the way that they get paid is actually a little bit different. Although you do, you get paid typically what's called 2 and 20 in the industry, which is 2% of the fund size annually as a management fee plus 20% of the ultimate profits. So as the actual VC, you're in a great situation because if you win big on a couple of bets, 
you get to share in the wealth, but even if you lose, you still get paid pretty nicely. So what, what you're getting at now is, is there's there's a bit of a misalignment in VC between mm -hmm. GPs, the guys that actually run the fund, and LPs, the guys that invest in the fund. Well, what I would say is that the GPs, the guys who run the fund, are actually taking advantage of an inefficiency between secret creation and secret acquisition. How so? Or go on more. Well, uh, I would say, as evidence, I would say this. I would say, given the fact that there is a market for these secrets, because big companies need them, and that secrets are being found on a regular basis, because these valuable startups are being created, and they do go on to get acquired, or occasionally acquired by the public, in the case of an IPO, that there is a healthy market. However... Despite the fact that there's this healthy market, VC as an asset class performs fairly badly, right? Most LPs in, that invest in funds do not get returns that beat the market, despite the fact that they take on all this risk and it's this very special kind of asset class. Furthermore, it's like you can ask where is all this money going and where is all this inefficiency being collected? You could say, well, the place that I would look at are the VCs themselves who collect these very nice management fees in exchange for what could be in effect considered brokering the secret sale. And I wrote a blog post recently about this where I touch on this very, very briefly, um, but didn't get to fully explore it. So I hope we can talk about this a little bit more here. Sure. Well, so what, what I wonder, and you know, we've both worked at a, at a place called Tantalunch here in Montreal, and one of the neat things that Tantalunch is trying to do is mitigate some of the risks that are inherent in starting a company. The very first few decisions you make, mm -hmm. a lot of things can go wrong in how you structure your company. Oh, yeah. And that's really where Tantalunch excels. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're a great fund run by great, really intelligent people, but that's really where they hit it out of the park, is, is forming the right team, governing the company well from the beginning, finding IP, finding technical leads, and finding a business leads from the beginning. But their model is, is quite interesting because they don't nest, because they mitigate some of the risk up front, one can make the argument that it's a bit less risky than some of your traditional VC bets. Mm -hmm. In that sense, if they can cut down the percentage of losers in their fund, mm -hmm. you know, instead of um, eight in 10 companies failing or breaking even, if they can get four or five, mm -hmm. they can actually get a, a decent IRR their return on the fund mm -hmm. from some small to medium-sized wins. And that's interesting. So the question is, is this a, a, a solution to this uh, misalignment between GPs and LPs that you're talking about, this inefficiency? Um, can, can, sure. a, can a fund exist uh -huh. that, you know, instead of swinging for the fences, shoots for singles and doubles consistently? Uh -huh. And does that sort of bring back that... Um, pricing of, of small and medium-sized wins into the equation, where mm -hmm. it's not today in, in traditional VC funding. Sure. Well, okay, um, in my post, I had proposed that at any given time, the value of a secret should be thought of as the sum total of all the future profits that a secret could make a given owner times a time discount times a risk discount. And the Peter Thiel mechanism for maximizing secret value appears to be just maximize the total future profits right, and let the rest take care of itself. Whereas the tandem launch approach appears to say, no, 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 focus on minimizing the risk discount from the very, very beginning. Hit a lot of singles, doubles, bunts, be the Kansas City Royals from last year. And hey, it almost worked. Almost. <laughs> In that case. Um, but can, so, can that work? So that's it. I mean, so, so I think the, the sort of foundation of this podcast is... In the shift from on-balance sheet R&D to off-balance sheet R&D, the, the sort of change in behavior towards the access economy for R&D, if you will, uh, what you lose is, is those small and medium-sized wins being priced into the, the future value of your secret. Right? Because when you find um, the private funding, right? the, guys, the, the VC guys that take the risk on off-balance sheet R&D, they can't have those small and medium sized wins because when you price into their equation, it's inefficient. Mm -hmm. And what that, that causes is, is sort of a, a negative feedback loop of inefficiencies that makes them only shoot for home runs. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you solve that in the way that Tanamach is solving it by trying to mitigate that, that risk up front, going, taking the Kansas City Royals approach, mm -hmm. 
does this maybe pull the equation back towards some level of efficiency that we've lost? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if we can really take the the money ball approach full circle, um, we <laughs> we learned from uh, from Mr. Billy Bean that although the singles and doubles and the bunts approach towards getting um, a very very consistent return on effort in terms of getting hits a lot, you still get better return in the long run from hitting lots of two-run home runs, right? Most efficient, what was it? It was like most efficient runs per dollar spent on people or whatever was the two-run home run. It's, it's, again, it's like a company like Tandem Launch, If even if they get like, the, I mean, Tandem Launch is a small fund, so they can get away with this. Um, but can a large VC fund with a 100, 200, 500 million dollar uh, needle to move pursue this strategy? Or do they rapidly run into trouble where like for instance, you know Andreessen Horowitz as a good example, had a, like landed you know a, a five million dollar investment into Instagram or something at the last minute, made a one and a half X return or whatever in 10 minutes and was really mad because now they couldn't invest in any photo software anymore. Well, I, th I think, didn't, didn't, they, didn't Andreessen get something like 75 million back from, from uh, Instagram from their previous investment? Yeah. And, but I remember, because I remember this anecdote because the, mm -hmm. the point it proved is that they made a smaller investment in Instagram. Yes. And even though it was a big win, Andreessen didn't win big from Instagram. Yes. And That's correct. Yeah. So, uh, I th I th the, um, the problem with Instagram from Andreessen Horowitz's perspective is that they got something like a 70% return in you know, a very short period of time, which you, know, you would look at and say, well, like, that's great. What's wrong with that? The problem is that it didn't move the needle on their fund at all. No, well, they, so, so to go back one question and answer, does this strategy of, of singles and doubles work for uh, bigger funds? Yeah. The, the little thing, secret strategy. The little <laughs> secret strategy. Uh, the Billy Bean little secret strategy. Yeah. The reason no, I Billy Bean was the big secret. Okay. Right. Yeah. Billy sure. Bean is the the home two run home runs all day. <laughs> the reason I don't think this works is it's it's baked fundamentally into that two and twenty equation. Um, the what's it called again? The the, the cut that GPs take. Uh, your carry. Carry is the twenty. Is the twenty. Management fees the two. Right. So the reason this doesn't work is because uh, you know GPs are are usually smart people. But just like the rest of us, they're limited by the number of hours they have in a day. But what that means is that to be an effective GP who sits on boards, usually, I can only sit on so many boards. And so what I need, when I, when I have a billion dollar fund, I can only invest in, in so many companies because my GPs can only sit on so many boards. As a GP, I don't want to multiply my GP staff because what that means is I get a smaller and smaller percentage of my management fee with, with each new partner. Mm -hmm. So I need companies that I can pour money into so I can keep my GPs down. And if I pour money into it, I need it to be a big fund mover. So it sounds to me like the limiting factor here is the ability to sit on board seats and do traditional VC activities, which means is this the beginning of the end for VCs when more things like Y Combinator and AngelList start nipping at their heels? Potentially. And one of, you know, one of the things that, that I'd hope to talk about a bit too is, um, is there a type of secret, natural world secrets that, that are really sort of uh, IP-based and patent-based mm -hmm. uh, versus behavior secrets, which are more kind of experimentally discovered? I, I'm not entirely sure how to, how to put that. Mm -hmm. um, but does this new off-balance sheet uh, economy for, for big companies work better for one type or the other? Mm -hmm. So there's this, this common trope that, uh, you can start a company today for, for less money with fewer resources than you ever could at any point in, in history. Very true, but for a certain subset of, of companies. Mm -hmm. and you, you can start a Snapchat or a Tinder uh, or even a Facebook with a small amount of people in a dorm room with a very small amount of money because mm -hmm. to some extent in the beginning, it's a lot less about technical risk and, and more about market risk. Is the mm -hmm. market going to become addicted to this behavior that I'm introducing to them? When WhatsApp was sold to Facebook, they had 25 engineers, and they were sending 7 trillion messages a year. More, more than, I think, global SMS at that point. Yes. And so 25 engineers like, think about that. were able to support more than the global SMS uh, volume, which I, you, know, I, you could That's count up staggering. all of the engineers at all these telecoms. It's yeah. probably in the tens of thousands, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands, yeah. maybe. Anyway. But, you know, to form a certain 
part a certain type of company is that's not the case hardware companies are still expensive deep r&d companies are still expensive uh does this off balance sheet reporting work for those types of companies is it is the risk swayed a bit too much right going back to that that bell lab example that we've been that we've been fixating on a bit you have resources there you have equipment you have lab you have um access to certain things that you don't right so i'm not arguing and this will definitely be a, a subject of a later podcast that mm-hmm. uh web companies aren't technology companies mm-hmm. uh to scale you know we talked before we started the podcast alex and i were talking about uh how uber brought on the whole carnegie Mellon math department to scale there's some pretty big technology related mm-hmm. problems math related problems that you need to solve mm-hmm. but in the beginning you can do it with a couple of guys with MacBooks. Right. Well, and I would say, again, actually, we come back to one of the problems that Tandem Watch attempts to solve, which is that very often these technological secrets are being discovered in places like university labs, where there are PhDs and postdocs who have been working on these very, very difficult problems for years, but have no idea how to commercialize or take the next step into turning it into something commercially valuable, right? So here, here's an interesting question. Is it harder to commercialize a natural world secret or or the same level of difficulty as a behavioral secret? Ooh. So I'm gonna I'm gonna toss an answer out there. We'll, we'll okay. see how it goes. Yeah. I think that from a success percentage, they're roughly the same. Sure. Uh, I I would equate though that the that the uh, the components of that equation are different for both companies or, or sort of behavior related secrets are more about striking a nerve than they are about uh, R&D. What's a great example of like a behavior related secret? Tinder. Sure. I'm in one okay. place. There are people near me, and, and in a second, from a, I can I can swipe right and, and um, do that that same thing that I do in bars. I, I'll glance over at someone and in a second decide whether I like them or not. I do the same thing virtually with Tinder. I guess what exactly would have been the secret with Tinder? Is it is it, the, is it like what is the thing that you were not allowed to say? <laughs> well, that, that we all check out people in a bar when they walk by in a second and, and make a snap decision on them. I guess that's yeah. I guess the, the snap decision part is pretty reasonable. But, but the, the secret yeah. there is that you don't know what what their decision is on you when they glance at you. Uh, so it's I it's sort it. of solving the information uh, asymmetry there. Sure. But with the natural world secret, something that's more IP based and that's more patent based. Yeah. The risks are technical up front. Mm-hmm. So what you have in, in a behavioral uh, secret mm-hmm. is, mar- is market risk. Mm-hmm. What you have in, in a natural world secret is technical risk. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, again, the, the components are different in the equation, but the parameters are different in the equation. I, I would guess the outcome of success is roughly the same. Um, well, again, so it are you defining outcome in terms of total number of companies started relative to successes or total number of hours of work invested relative to successes? I would, I would define success as, oh man, it's tough. Either, either, well, let's go with market cap. Hard dollar or market cap. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what you see and, and, you know, I, a user, a listener could, could probably prove me wrong mathematically here. Uh, but you know, these, these behavioral startups, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll list a few just so to, to be more clear, something like Snapchat or Tinder or Facebook, or even something like Uber, that, that's mm-hmm. a, or be something that's an emergent behavior through something that at least initially had low technical risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get, I mean, the, the beauty of those types of companies is you can get a massive market capitalization close to overnight, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it is an exponential growth curve and they do start small, but, but they get very big, very quickly. Yeah. I think you, you have a, 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 a few select huge winners in that category mm-hmm. and a lot a higher a much higher percentage of complete object failures. Sure. Like for, for every Tinder there were there were dozens of Tinders that never got off the ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think there were more uh, singles and doubles in the natural world category. Sure. But like you never see anyone licensing a Tinder. Right. There's nothing to license there. But you, you do get licensing deals, you do get small acquisitions, you do become a component of a larger solution if you have a natural world mm-hmm. solution. But on the other hand, uh, it probably takes a lot more people hours and to discover a secret about the natural world in the sense that 
if you really go back to the very beginning, you know, if some genius paper is written by a PhD student somewhere and then expanded on and you know turned into something commercially viable, it's like how many hours do you count here? Do you just count the activity turning it into something that can be packaged and sold? Do you count the total number of hours in the PhD's training? Do you count the hours in the supervisor's well, training? What, that what we're getting into is, is yeah. there's a difference, a difference sort of intrinsic risk in each. Mm -hmm. I think you know. Almost over a beer, you could invent Snapchat sure. or Facebook or Tinder. Well, invent, quote well, unquote. You, you could yeah. come up with the core behavior, swiping sure. right, snapping a picture, sharing content yeah. over a beer. Sure. It's not the case with uh, Natural World Secrets. Right. Mm -hmm. But probably when you're working in the right environment, the chances of that idea being a decent idea are much higher. Right? Mm -hmm. Like for every, every uh, Facebook that was invented over a beer, dozens and dozens of Terrible not Facebooks were invented too. <laughs> but when you're in a PhD lab and you're coming up with, with real technology, you can probably commercialize a higher percentage of those. I mean, having Maybe. spent some time in the graduate lab, a lot of what we did was, to, to put it generously, not commercially viable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I guess what I'm trying to get here and having trouble kind of finding an elegant argument is. Um, and again, I guess we can go back to the baseball analogy. Behavioral secrets are, are more like, uh, Babe Ruth isn't the best example. I'm trying to think of, a, of maybe like a, uh, a Barry Bonds or, or a Sammy Sosa or a Mark McGuire. Oh, you Someone will do anything to get it out of the park. <laughs> you only hit home runs. Uh, okay. You only hit home runs there. Whereas I, I think the uh, the natural world secrets, you get a lot more utility players, the guys that get 3,000 hits. Sure. Uh, and I think that's a, a sort of intrinsic difference in these two types of secrets. And mm -hmm. Well, that would make sense, especially if we take it back to Peter Thiel in Zero to One, how if he keeps insisting you know, as a fund manager, as head of Founders Fund and having invested in many wildly successful things, he obviously cares about the big winners because that's what's going to drive his portfolio home. He doesn't really care about the singles and doubles. But if you're a founder, maybe you do want the single or the double because that advances your career a whole lot. You get paid, you know, you get made rich to the point that you are now set for life, right? I'm going to make a, a, a bit of a, a perverse argument here, which is that I don't think that's an inefficiency and I don't think that's a bad thing. Remember, if you're a scientist in Bell Labs mm -hmm. and you get you invent something big, you get a nice bonus, sure. but you don't get millions or billions. But you were probably already getting paid a nice salary in the first place. Sure. Though. Again, it's it's low risk reward. Yeah. And you move to the other end of that spectrum, you're kind of accepting the fact that it's high risk, high reward at that mm -hmm. point. Uh, and and again, if you're the kind of scientist who works in Bell Lab, that that was a a life choice you made. Mm -hmm. You can take a low risk, low reward job, or you yeah. can take a high risk, high reward job. I don't think that's, that speaks to any sort of efficiency in the system. I think that's just the spectrum of risk. So here's a question for you. Let's say I'm a recent PhD graduate who is, by all accounts, very smart, and I want to work in the equivalent of Bell Labs today, where I will be able to work on bleeding-edge, very interesting problems, but I don't want high risk. I want that nice, stable paycheck and my pension and yeah. my nice deal. Where do I go? I think there's tons of places to go. Yeah. I mean, it, you can go to uh, any sort of uh, what you would consider a big tech company today. Mm -hmm. uh, you, uh, So many people do this in, in that sort of almost working at Facebook is the next sort of uh, investment banking craze. Kids mm -hmm. today, either recent MBAs or... or uh, computer science graduates are not going and working at IB. They're going and working sure. at Facebook. Sure. Well, that's, that's those are for sure great jobs. But if you want to work on deep technical problems, right, would this be an instance of Facebook taking on on balance sheet secret discovery? Yeah, I think so. Cool. Mm -hmm. huh. And yeah, this is, I know very little about the inner workings of the, the, the big Facebooks and the Googles of the world in terms of how much they do themselves, but that does make a lot of sense. Well, I think the, 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 and we should almost come up with a term for this, the sustaining secrets of a company. That there's, you know, if you look at Facebook oh, as an example, again, remember that Zuckerberg had the equivalent of, of uh, the Zuckerberg dollar because of the way that his stock price worked. And he could basically, he could buy Instagram, he could buy WhatsApp because he just could, right? So, so he had opportunities there in the offset uh, mm -hmm. balance sheet. But, you know, again, looking at Facebook as an example, 
early on it was a behavioral secret. Early on it was that people like to share, people like to check up on their neighbors, people like to know everything they could about their friends and, and stalk people. Oh, stalk, stalking was Facebook's original secret, I think, to me. Exactly. Yeah. And and if you and if you look at them scale, the the secrets they needed to uncover shifted a little bit. So so now there's been this big shift in, in how do they you know a couple years well, now. Now they've solved the, the mobile problem to some extent. Two years ago, it was not looking good for Facebook. People were saying, you know, the majority of their, their revenues come from desktop use, and the world is shifting to mobile. How is Facebook going to deal with this? Mm-hmm. Arguably, they've, they've done it quite well. Uh, I think, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the secrets they need to uncover were not behavioral anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe there are some. Maybe the behavioral secret that Facebook has uncovered recently is how important... Uh, uh, chat and, and messaging is to mobile users sure. and that's you know messenger being a standalone app that's whatsapp messenger being like a platform yeah we'll, but we'll talk about that later but if you look if you look at, at what they're doing as well they have some natural world secrets they needed to uncover to scale well right i mean something like uptime something like server cost is is, is non-trivial for these sorts of companies both from a market perspective and, and cost right so you see facebook coming up with things like six pack uh, is sort of the, the latest innovation from Facebook on the hardware and network side. So, you know, reading a, a post called Introducing Six Pack, the first open hardware modular switch from Yuval Bakker in, in February, you know, he says they, they started by creating a, a top of line, uh, sorry, top of rack network switch, and then a Linux based operating system for that switch, then data center fabric, uh, and now Six Pack, which is um, uh, a full mesh, non-blocking, two-stage switch that includes 12 independent switching elements. So you're, you're, you're looking at this from a company that's Facebook. All of a sudden, they're taking on infrastructure that's traditionally been left to companies like Cisco. Yeah, as I was say, they're solving a Cisco problem it's a because Cisco they have to. Problem. And they're doing it in-house, which is even more impressive. So, so there's this interesting dynamic here, too, which is that as you scale, maybe the type of secret you discover shifts from... Uh, being a behavioral secret to a natural world secret. And maybe you could make the argument that as any company scales, to some extent, the type of secret that you don't cover shifts. Sure, absolutely. And I, w- I would argue that furthermore, it's like, you know, while in parallel, uh, Facebook is going about and solving Cisco problems, which is awesome, they're in no shortage to go aggressively go after and acquire companies like Instagram, who figured out powerful things that, about how people share photos and WhatsApp about how people communicate via text, and the Oculus, right? <laughs> no, Facebook's acquisition team has done a masterful job. Oh, I think. yeah. There's no denying that. Well, if, if we can pivot for a second to a smaller example, I'll, I'll talk about mirror metrics for a second. And Please. So, so mirror metrics, historically, this is, this is where I work for, for those listeners I'm unaware. Uh, mirror metrics started off as an eye tracking company. We, we sold $10,000 peripheral webcams, essentially, uh, that provided a very niche function uh, to be able to tell where users looking on a screen. Uh, over time, we've innovated in our design, really tried to eliminate a lot of the, uh, the hardware constraints, the size constraints, the, the positioning constraints, uh, to take you know, something that, that you know, retailed for $10,000 and make it something that was small enough and cheap enough that you could put it in a commercial device, a commercial electronic device. Uh, and let's just say for the sake of argument that we've done that. We started by solving a natural world problem. Right? We have mm-hmm. 14 years of R&D. We have eight or nine patent mm-hmm. families at this point. Yeah. That's certainly natural world secrets. I, I can vouch that Mirametrics has spent a lot of time thinking about natural world secrets. But as we shift, one of the quite interesting things is that when you go and you sell something like eye tracking, it's historically been used primarily for academic research, okay. for people with disabilities, uh, things like web design and, and sort of uh, almost... Um, game testing, right? How, how does a user look around a, a gaming scene uh, and how does it indicate how well the UI is, is put together? Mm-hmm. But, but when you go and you sell that, people say, I don't need that on my commercial device, on my consumer electronics device, on my mobile phone, my laptop, my all-in-one. So what you have now is a behavioral problem. Mm-hmm. As soon as we solved the natural world problem of is it cheap enough, is it small enough, can it can be put in the right place, you have a different type of secret to encounter, which is why. Why will people use a technology like this? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, I mean, these, these are just two examples. And, and from a scientific method perspective, that's nowhere near the sample size you need to answer this question. But I wonder if, if a shift in the type of secret you need to uncover to sustain your growth is almost commonplace. Um, 
I would say that it's, it is a characteristic of leveling up. Leveling up. Yeah, it's like, one, it, and again, it's, it's a situation of you, su- you set out solving one problem, and then only once you've solved the problem do you realize that the larger problem or the underlying problem is in fact something else. This could very well be a situation, just like for you guys, it's perfect. You solve a technical problem, then realize that the larger problem is behavioral. Again, for Facebook, it may be that by solving a behavioral problem, they realize that the underlying problem to sustain all this is a secret about the natural world, like how do organisms communicate with each other, right? That's a secret about the national, natural world. It's or whatever Uber is doing with uh, the Carnegie Mellon Math Department. Whatever Uber is doing with the Carnegie Mellon Math Department. That's, that's a t- I would love to do a podcast about Uber, by the way. Before we wrap it up, there is something that I do want to touch base on, though, which is what happens to all of this in the future, right? If the past was Bell Labs and the present is Sand Hill Road in the VC industry, what's the future look like? What do you think? Well, so I gave a sneak preview about this in my post that I wrote a couple days ago, but I think we've seen a glimpse of this future with Facebook's Messenger rolling out their platform. What happened here is they pulled off a brilliant move, which is to say, look, from now on, anybody can build you know, services and apps and little things and widgets inside of Facebook's Messenger. So rather than having to build your install base, you can use all 800 million of Facebook's users and have access to all of them immediately. This is brilliant because what Facebook is now doing is saying, if you're going to build the next Snapchat, build it inside Facebook Messenger and use Facebook's users so that we will be capturing 80% of the value of your secret by virtue of it being on our platform by having done almost none of the work, which is some Tim Ferriss shit right there. Well, they solved the scale problem. Mm -hmm. They solved the scale problem, but they also solved the problem of no longer needing to buy everything anymore, right? Now, if the next Snapchat is built inside Facebook Messenger, do they have to buy you? No. (laughs) They let you exist. And then more people are using Facebook, which is what they want. So we've moved from on-balance to off-balance. Balance to, we moved from on-balance to off-balance to gone from the balance sheet. They just have to do some homework first. It's almost free value to, to that. It's, it's a free way of acquiring. So you don't need to spend your R&D dollars on it. Mm-hmm. You don't need to spend your M&A dollars on it. It's just there. It's just there. And you receive the value through your, through the, through your network effect. And also, you, it's there because you can provide that network effect. It's there, because you are, it's there because they can provide the network effect. They can do this because they are the king, right? It, it certainly helps to be the incumbent, and it certainly helps to have a billion users. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because that, that's almost, you know, if, if we use the, if, you know, if we go back to something I said a few minutes ago, is that you don't see licensing deals for behavioral secrets. You don't see something like Tinder being licensed. No. Because, I mean, and, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's not... The, the value there is not in the behavior. The value there is in the value of the user, the scale that it's at, right? That's, that's why the business model of today is to found something, make it free, get as many users as possible, and then turn on the taps for monetization. The value is not in the innovation, the value is in the scale. And, and that's why behavioral secrets can work in a modern age. With Messenger, mm-hmm. It's almost like Facebook is getting a free license to these innovations because the value they need is the scale. That's what Facebook can provide. That's a great, great way to think about it. Facebook Facebook has figured out a way to license the next Snapchat for free. Because what they can provide is the value, is the scale. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love it when we come up with things (laughs) like that. We're two for two at this point. You, you, That's pretty good. You crashed it last time. I, I had a rare well brilliance there. And Pound. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, That's how we ended it right there. <laughs> cool. That's interesting. So, um, Matt, your thoughts for the future. Um, on the natural world secret side of licensing and hard science, where do you see uh, the future going? I'm going to stick with my original guns in that it's still expensive and it's still hard to create natural world secrets. There's there's no way that 
Yeah. Uh, well, there is a way. It's very rare that you can come up with a natural world seeker. It's with, with three guys with a MacBook. I remember, and I forget the details, and maybe we can go back and, and post a link to to this this story, but there was a guy a few years ago, maybe you know who this is. There's a guy a few years ago who actually found a way, I think he wrote you know, tens of thousands of lines of assembler code, but he found a way to, to, to extract a higher frame rate from the stock iPhone camera via software. So he got something like 120 FPS uh, from the Apple uh, or uh, uh, user-facing or sorry, world-facing camera, uh, which was what like four years or something. Uh, I, I don't remember, I, but they didn't have. I think it might have been as low as 30 okay. at that point. So he found a way to almost quadruple the frame awesome. rate of his camera. Yeah. Uh, and this is one guy, mm -hmm. and, and he got acquired by Apple. The acquisition price was never really yeah, literally he got acquired by Apple. Yeah, this, 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 is an, this is an example <laughs> of a, a guy with a MacBook, and, and, and I mean, obviously, this guy was brilliant mm -hmm. coming up with a natural world secret on his own. Mm -hmm. But that's not the norm for these things, so it will remain hard. It, it will get easier as, as you as your productivity can increase and, and, and all that, but it will remain hard. So, I, I think you'll still see a, a large percentage of, of, uh, of company spend going to R&D because like we said, if you're a behavioral secret company and you, and you scale, you have to start tackling uh, natural world secrets like how does human behavior work at the scale? How can we support it from a technological standpoint? So you'll still see that. I, th I think you'll see a, a you know, a cycle of, of M&A purchases. It'll, it'll, it'll peak, it'll go down at a certain point, but, but it will always be there. I and, think, I, and I know that's not a very contrarian argument. That's the same <laughs> yeah. argument. Yeah, so we, we, we've summed up our contrarian podcast by saying something very mainstream. This is good. Um, I guess my closing thoughts would be to bring the baseball argument full circle is we can say that coming up with secrets about the natural world versus coming up with secrets about people and then successfully obtaining value for them in the form of exits is a little bit like the difference between hitting a single and hitting a home run in Major League Baseball. Hitting a single off of a Major League pitcher is almost unfathomably difficult for normal people. Just like taking a technology company to exit is unfathomably hard for normal people. But people do it, and people manage to make money that way. But it's a very different skill set to hit a home run versus to hit a single. Some people just have it. Right? Someone like Elon Musk is amazing at figuring out secrets about the natural world and secrets about people because he's Barry Bonds. He can hit the baseball anywhere. But for the rest of us, it's going to be interesting to see whether the, you know, the game of secret baseball progresses towards money ball and two-run home runs in the foreseeable future or if it goes back towards Kansas City Royal small ball. And we see a lot of deeply technical, small-exited targeted natural world secrets in the next little while. Cool. All right. This has been the second episode of Emergence Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned.